patients were were not being afforded that simple element of respect um, by writing to them and in a letter talking about what the consultation perhaps had been about. In many countries, the UK included, it's common after a secondary care consultation for that consultant to write to a patient's GP, copying the patient in, to update them about what's happened with the care. Now, that's a letter between two doctors, but the information in it is often really useful to that patient, but not written in a way to make sure that the patient would understand it. Now, a new article just published on bmj.com looks at that and has concluded that beyond just information provision it's just plain rude to talk about patients that way and instead they should be the one to whom any correspondence from secondary care is actually addressed to talk about that i'm joined by peter rees who's former chair of the academy of medical royal college's lay patient committee peter thank you for coming in to talk to us on the podcast Thank you for inviting me. And also by Hugh Rayner, consultant nephrologist from Birmingham. Hello. And you're both authors of a new article just published on bmj.com about letters, which is not something I think we've ever covered in the podcast before. Um, Hugh, you've written about this for us a while ago in an opinion article, and um, I'm just going to read out the beginning of that because I think this feels like something I've seen in, in clinical letters a lot that I always felt weird. So you started this opinion by saying, um, this was a letter from a paediatric surgeon uh, writing to a child's GP and copying in her parents. It began, thank you for referring this lovely young lady. Unfortunately, her mum could not be at the clinic today as she's not been well. And the father stepped in manfully. I've seen that kind of introduction uh, in letters before. And it always reads really weirdly to me. Um, is it that common that, that those weird introductions happen? I think it's become the norm, really. I mean, the tradition before patients were sent a copy of the letter that the consultant or the hospital doctor wrote to the GP um, was that you would thank you for referring this patient. Um, obviously, that predates the NHS, where patients would be sent for a private consultation mm. by the, uh, the hospital consultant and they had to thank them for the business um, but once the copying uh, convention came in I think it was felt that it needed to be made a little more f- uh, flattering about the patient so this convention of calling them calling patients pleasant seems to have crept in and I personally find it very um, peculiar like you do it's uh, you wouldn't really refer to anybody else as pleasant it sort of presupposes that some patients aren't pleasant yes and some people have said that if you get a letter copied to you as a patient that doesn't say you're pleasant it means that the pa- that you're not very popular so it, it is a slightly odd convention and i think just emphasizes how bizarre this idea that you write about somebody to somebody else it is yes absolutely and peter i mean you've you've had some of these letters before you must have noticed that as well very much so, and I, I just regard it as very dated practice, which um, seems to me um, not to reflect the opportunity to look at one's own practice and, and taking for granted what might be a, a template letter that's been in existence for more years than can be remembered. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in this, this article, 
that you've written for us, you just say very simply that um, instead of write a consultant writing to a GP, the consultant should write to a patient with all the information that that would be in that letter normally, but written in such a way that a patient, and therefore everyone, should be able to understand it. Um, we'll get into what that means and, and how to do some of that in a second, but um, you've obviously been activated by this, you've written about this uh, quite a lot, you. What started you to down that, that journey? Well, it was w- way back in 2005, and I was working with a colleague, nephrologist uh, Steve Smith, who was always very tuned into the patient's view of the world, the view of the hospital and the view of the interaction with, with the doctor, more so than I was. And he said, you know, this is bizarre. We shouldn't do this. We should write to the patient. And I was really nervous about the change. Um, and I guess like a lot of people say, once you're reformed, you become even more um, committed to publicising it because you see the benefits of it. I was anxious that, um, firstly, that the GP wouldn't like it, that the GP would feel somehow excluded from the fact that they were no longer being written directly to, that they would think it was being um, disrespectful. Uh, And also I was worried about whether it was possible to communicate the technical information, all the medical information, in a way to the patient without it being dumbed down and becoming a really messy form of communication. So we agreed that we would pilot it rather than just start doing it. Um, which we did for about a six-month period and uh, in our department. And we, uh, we managed to get our colleagues to do it uh, across the board. And the secretaries included a stamped addressed envelope with the letter, both to the GP and to the patient, so we could get feedback on it. And we ran it like this for about six months and got uh, 200 or more feedback responses, which we could then use as evidence to say this is actually a success or a failure and, and learn from our practice. No. Peter, at the time you were at the uh, Academy of Medical Royal Colleges and uh, Hugh came to you with this. Out of everything that the, the Academy is doing and all the things you care about, you, you know, this resonated enough that, um, that you decided to, to spend some time looking at it? I, I suddenly realised um, it was a... I won't say it was a eureka moment, but it was certainly a light bulb moment in terms of... Um, Hugh's work would sort of began to focus on what we had talked about and thought about in the patients group um, about not only the quality of understanding but the quality of communication mm. between clinicians and patients um, and it seemed to me to be not just a, a simple way of modifying behaviour but an extremely important way of helping clinicians understand Um, that patients were human beings um, that deserved to have correct, appropriate, understandable communication by whatever means, but particularly letters, which I felt that patients would very much appreciate. The great difficulty is that the NHS is under considerable pressure and actually having time both to talk and write um, in a way that's understood by patients um, has become a a bit of a premium but I also think it's very much part of what doctors in training should be inducted to very early on. Mm. And I suppose this this is fundamentally what this is about is this this slightly strange mindset of doctors talking to doctors about patients as if they are 
not part of that conversation as well. The simple fix for this is writing to patients. But as you say, Peter, that's not something that um, doctors maybe necessarily feel they are particularly good at doing, and you put in here some advice. So I just wonder, um, perhaps you could run through what that advice is, any any top tips for for writing to, to patients? People can uh, read the, and I hope they do, read the read the advice themselves, but the, to summarise it really, it's, um, it's self-evident good practice in any form of written communication. So we haven't invented um, uh, advice about how to write letters that was fresh and new. It was already in existence. Um, and it's all about clarity of layout and language, using plain language where you can, where it doesn't confuse the, the, the meaning. Uh, breaking up the letter into small, uh, short paragraphs and short sentences to in- improve the, the reading age. Um, uh, people may not realise that the, the average reading age in, the, in this country is apparently the age of ni- a nine-year-old. And it's very hard to actually reduce a, a letter from a clinician to a, a, le- to a nine-year-old, but aiming for a, a 13-year-old on a reading age score. Um, is what we should be going for and then making sure that by doing that you don't um, miss out important information so the great concern amongst everybody I think is that by doing this you 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 reduce the value the clinical value the informative value of the letter but if you divide the letter up into fairly conventional sections you can then have a free text part of the letter that which follows those rules for plain English yeah. uh, that the patient will read and a section that is more perhaps aimed at the GP. But even there, um, there are uh, conventions that actually cause confusion. So um, in the medication list, for example, it's, uh, we, this, th- by, by writing like this, it forced us to, to think carefully about how we write down changes to medication, the list of medication, abbreviations that were used, um, uh, GPs receive so many letters it's to, it's beholden upon the hospital I think to make it clear and easy for them to understand instructions for change of medication for example so we say put those in bold so they're they're pretty obvious pieces of advice that that if you implement them you can make a, 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 an easy step change in the quality of the communication hmm. and uh talking about the kind of information and things and now I think the conversation we're, we're going to have later will come round to our letters even that effective as a means of communication uh, at all um, but Peter before that uh, the Academy's involvement in this was to with the, the lay group sort of workshop this a little bit um, and I just wonder about what really mattered to patients um, here Well, I think, I think we had some very interesting discussions which um, fortunately and, and appropriately spread across all of the medical royal colleges and, and faculties um, that were represented on our our lay group um, and, and, and I think what Hugh did was really to sort of open up a discussion um, I won't say that patients had been afraid to have um, and to interfere with sort of uh, clinical communication but did actually realise um, that that there was a problem there about how people were communicated with, um, and and that that produced in in some ways a, a, an element of indignity to begin with, mm. and then how how can we help this process and how can we put our weight behind 
the work that Hugh was doing um, to say from the patient's point of view, hang on a minute, there's a human being in there. Could you just not um, talk to us appropriately? Mm. The other thing that occurs to me is when a doctor is writing to a doctor and the patient is just copied in, that doesn't invite the patient to ask for clarification about something that they might not understand. It doesn't... I suppose it must make you feel almost like an interloper if you try and and butt into that conversation that's happening. Indeed, and I think that's an extremely important point of of Hugh's work that we we picked up, um, that instead of instead of being referred to in the first person um, directly, um, we, patients were, were not being afforded that simple element of respect um, by writing to them and in a letter talking about what the consultation perhaps had been about in a way that was um, n- not, not too high and mighty and not too technical either. And I think that has been the problem with a lot of letters, um, that the, the technical element is for communication between clinician to clinician, n- not a clinician thinking, well, how can I follow up the consultation that I've had by talking to a patient in in a, a most appropriate way in a letter? Mm. Um, now, Hugh, people who can communicate fantastically in a spoken way, perhaps in a in a face-to-face consultation um, might not necessarily be particularly good at communicating in, in the written word. I mean, that's why editors have the job that editors do. So I, I just wondered, when you were starting this and piloting this with people, um, was there a, a, a kind of learning curve? Did you take people through a little oh, yes. programme of how to actually Well, we do took that? ourselves through that programme, mm. um, and that was part of making the introduction actually more interesting uh, and certainly more effective, I think. Um, I come back to the reading age score. That's actually remarkably helpful because you get a number and doctors like measuring things <laughs> and they like data. And I actually got um, the agreement of my colleagues to take a, a random sample of everybody's letters, trainees and consultants in the department and score them and then put that data up in front of everybody and say, look, this is the variation. It was huge. Variation was huge. Um, We tended to find that the trainee doctors, uh, who who did quite quite happily take on writing to the patients, they would write much longer letters, very much more verbose, and tend to put in writing phrases they would use face-to-face, which actually isn't a good way of writing a letter. Making it familiar, but not just like a conversation. So there are a lot of conventions uh, and phrases that people use that actually aren't, aren't necessary, aren't informative. So you say things like actually and, and, and a lot of the thing I'd like to include. So a lot of um, doctors include the strange medical phraseology that we use. So they would write on examination, I could hear no murmurs in your heart or something like mm. that. Uh, on examination that's a, a very when you see it written down and read it from the patient's point of view it's a very weird phrase but we use it all the time we think it's normal speak but when you start seeing it in a written letter it, it stands out and it's getting rid of all those rather un, uh, unnecessary bits of phraseology they're not really jargon they're sort of medical speak hmm. um, made the letters much simpler and clearer yeah um just a quick note on uh reading ages the thing that i find when i was you know studying that someone explained to me that 
a reading age of 13 doesn't mean that someone has the comprehension of a, you know someone who is 13. It just means that 13, that's the point where people's education starts splitting off and going in different directions. And you might not have studied science at all. You might have you know, studied English literature or something. So it's, a, it's about assumed knowledge rather than, I don't know, mental capacity, perhaps. Yes, that's helpful, yeah. So we've been talking here about letters, which are a very old form of communication. Um, but I suppose this has relevance then for for everything that doctors write in notes, especially now that, you know, patients should have access to see um, the notes written about them. It, clear communication in there must be just as important as well. Uh, Peter, would this would you care about that? Have you seen your notes? Were you able to, to understand them? Yes, I think that's a very important point. Um, access to information about oneself is now um, protected and enshrined in, in law. Um, but certainly as a patient, um, I have always been very grateful um, when I've had a letter that has been written by a clinician to another clinician sort of copied to me um, and I, I have personal experience of, of that happening but with a consultant actually saying um, let me know if there's anything that you're not sure about or you don't understand in a letter um, which there was and I did get in touch with him and, and had um, a, a very useful follow-up telephone call but he, he seemed to be on the right path to making communication with patients better. Mm. And I suppose, Hugh, the, the point there is, is a communication isn't just one thing that happens, it's a dialogue that, that goes backwards and forwards. So beyond the letter, do you think there is uh, a necessity to change the way in which, which that dialogue happens? Yes, I, uh, the, the skills that we're talking about are generic skills and need to be taught. You don't, I had to teach myself. They're not included normally, as far as I'm aware, in undergraduate or postgraduate education. This is a, an assumed skill, which I think is a bit of a hole. There's a lot of emphasis on communication skills by which people refer largely to face-to-face -face breaking bad news kind of conversations, um, which is very important, clearly. But the written element is often omitted in training, and I think that is something that needs to be addressed. Um, so the idea that letters are a bit outdated, I, I would switch it back, actually. Um, we, we often got comments that, well, why don't we just make these electronic communications? Well, firstly, clearly there's a digital divide, and the, a lot of patients, elderly patients in particular, mm. are socioeconomically deprived patients, are, don't have ready access to those forms of communication. Mm. But even those who do, the fact that you don't get letters through the letterbox anymore, when you do get one on a piece of paper, I think it has greater impact. Mm. So I would suggest that, that the, the, the importance of a paper letter that is a, a clear and concise summary of what's gone on is, is more valued now that it's an unusual event than it would have been in the past. Uh, the other angle is that a lot of concern... Uh, was coming from clinicians who would say that my letter is an important record of medical information and medical facts that the GP needed to know. And in the past, I think that is, uh, and potentially still in the, uh, at the moment, that is true, that the GP needs to be given information, factual information about a patient, because they can't get it easily in other ways. But as intercommunication inter between uh, medical record systems improves, the, the, the use of the letter as the way of communi communicating test results and so forth 
has diminished and so the the letter can focus much more on interpretation and action and management plan rather than just a factual description of physical findings for example making making it easier to switch to to writing the interpretation and the management plan in a way that the patient can can address mm. So I feel convinced by your argument, if there's anyone listening to this or reading the article as well that feels equally convinced and wants to change their practice, is there anything stopping people just writing to the patients and copying the GP in as opposed to the other way around? Well, I would go the other way and say that the bodies that opine on these things and give recommendations on these things for example the academy this was the academy of all medical royal colleges uniformly enthusiastically endorsed this they've issued that guidance the royal college physicians uh, my college has included it in their guidance for best practice for outpatients the gmc supports it medical defense organizations see this potentially as a way of reducing litigation as a result of poor communication so i think the boots on the other foot now really as you should say why not um the the, uh, the and i get i have had um conversations with other doctors um the issue of how to get doctors to change their practice is actually quite difficult um members of the public find it hard to understand why we can't just say well now you've got to do this and i find it hard to defend why doctors um uh, are hard to to change their practice uh, but but recognize this is a difficult uh, challenge for some some clinicians are really quite resistant to it um, I remember one presentation I made to a group of medical directors uh, and a medical director said well I write very clear letters to the GP and copying to the patient what's the difference and I thought oh how am I going to deal with this question but what was interesting was I didn't need to address it because everybody else in the room all the other medical directors in the room say you don't get it do you and some had their own personal experiences of them having been patients where they'd been written to directly, that this is not just about the facts or the letter. It's about uh, etiquette. It's about treating a patient, as Peter has said, with respect and, dig- and digni- dignity. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so I think you have to appeal to, their, to people's uh, better nature almost um, to get them to persuade, to want to change. Uh, but I would say if they take on the, take on the challenge and, and, and give it a go, they will not be disappointed. It's, it's been the most productive and rewarding change in my practice I've done since I was uh, appointed as a consultant. Can I, can I just come in with an adjunct to that? And I think what Hugh has said is, is absolutely right. My, my professional life is working for a university training teachers, undergraduates to become teachers. And, and part of that training is the very important emphasis that we play um, on the relationship between schools, teachers, head teachers, and parents and, and how that relationship is, is improved. And we do expect and include writing skills as part of the training programme over the three years. So I think that uh, apart from existing clinicians and, and current practice, which is very important, and I think the research that's been done bears this out very clearly for existing clinicians. It is something that needs to be thought about very carefully, how it is embedded in the training of all doctors. Um, I think we've we've done a lot of work, or there has been a lot of work done um, on verbal communication, but 
this writing out patients' letters to patients raises a lot of very interesting issues um, about whether that sort of attitude towards a patient and writing to a patient is included sufficiently strongly enough in a clinician's training. So there we go. That article, Writing Out Patient Letters to Patients, is now published on bmj.com. Hugh, Peter, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Now that's it for this podcast, but we'll be back later this week looking at Big Tan, how the tanning industry has influenced the research published about the effects of their product. That will be available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts from. So if you haven't already, you can subscribe so you don't miss out on that. So until then, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.